This week was an interesting, uh, a sad week. Uh, um, uh, somebody said a bittersweet uh, week with the passing of Billy Graham. Uh, and I think that the, the, the com comment uh, was that it is bitter that we have lost such a great man. But it's sweet to know that he's with Jesus. And... Um, You know, my life was impacted by Billy in an interesting way. Billy is 100 years old, and so when I think was 100 years old and is dying or 99, I couldn't remember if he had gotten to, his, to the 100th part of his life, but um, my grandparents loved Billy Graham. And every time that I would visit my, my mom's parents, um, almost every time I visited, my grandmother was either listening to a Billy Graham message or she was watching Billy Graham on TV. And of course, in the 70s and 80s, we saw a lot more of Billy on TV than we did in his la latter years when he was still doing his crusades. But um, I can say this, my, my grandmother especially was not a super religious woman. And um, she... Um, she didn't always demonstrate the life of Christ in a kind way. She was, she, there, was, there was a hardness to her. There was, a, there, was a, there was something missing in her life. But when she listened to Billy Graham and she heard the gospel and she heard the word of God explained clearly, it's almost as if joy filled her heart. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure where my grandmother is, but I, I, I do thank God that Billy had a, a role in speaking into her life. There's been many commentators who have, who have said, and even presidents who have said, that Billy was the pastor of, a, of, pastor of America, you know, a pastor of a multiple generations, a friend of many presidents. Um, but what I'm thankful for most of all is that he was one who was simple and clear in his faith. It really was just about Jesus. If you ever listen to messages that Billy preached, you're like, you know what? There wasn't any unbelievable rhetoric in Billy's preaching. There wasn't a, a tremendous amount of clever insight. He was just clear and simple about who Jesus was. And I'm, later on, I'm going to read a little bit uh, from a, a, a conversation that he had. But... Uh, isn't that true about the gospel? Isn't that true about Jesus? That when we get out of the way and we let Jesus be at the front, powerful things happen. Billy, um, you know, there's different quotes out there. The, the, the one that I read said that he had preached to over 100 million people. And that in that, the, those crusades, and I don't think these statistics are quite right because I'm sure that it was much more than this, but over 100 million people he preached to and at least 300 documented conversions in those, in those crusades, and I'm sure that it's much more than that, that responded to the, to the message, the simple message of the gospel through his preaching. He was known to be a man of integrity. Um, he was known to be a friend of those who hated Christianity or despised Christianity, but they loved Billy. I think there's something to be said of that, that even, with, even in the face or in the presence of our fiercest critics, um, that we would be loved because they experience love from us. It's not often that I get to pay respects to great people, but it would be amiss for me and us to not recognize the life of Billy Graham. 
and I'd just like to pray over his family and those that are impacted by his, his, his passing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Graham family. We thank you for the friends and family that surround this, this man. We ask, Father, in this week, as he's remembered, as he's honored, Lord, I know that it would be his prayer that he would fade into the background and, Jesus, you would come to the foreground. So, Jesus, would you be lifted up this week? Lord, we're asking that a mantle pass us. Lord, we're asking that not just one man, but a million men and women would be raised up with that evangelistic zeal to praise you, to declare you, to simply proclaim you, to live you in such a way that millions upon millions are impacted by the love of Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at Mark and this life of Jesus, and we've been asking the last couple of weeks, and we will continue to ask Jesus to reveal his kingdom to us. And there's no better way for his kingdom to be revealed to us than to, to, to learn about him through his word, his living word, the Bible that hopefully you either bring in every Sunday via hard copy, soft copy, uh, phone, tablet, whatever you do, memorize. Uh, you know, maybe there's a few of you in here that have memorized the Bible. That would be awesome. Um, you're working on it. Good, Tabby. That's awesome. Um, but the living Word of God teaches us about the living Word, capital W, Jesus. Because we, we, we know through the Scripture that Jesus not only was a great man, right? But that He is still living today. That he died, but three days later he rose again, and he sits at the right hand of God, and it says that he's interceding for us. He is ruling and reigning over all of heaven and earth, all authority, all principalities are, are under the authority of Jesus. Jesus is not sitting alongside of Buddha. He's not sitting alongside of Muhammad. He's not sitting alongside of the great philosophers and in and, and theologians and great people and servants, all human beings who have died are in their grave. Their bodies are in their grave. But Jesus Christ is alive. And he rules and reigns. And he has all authority because he was from the very beginning. He, he lived and died and rose again and sits at the right hand of God. And he will be forevermore the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a historical figure, although we will look at him from a historical context today. We are talking about God. We're talking about the Savior of all mankind. And we just learned in Mark 2, last, or Mark 1 last week, that he, is an, an amazing, he was an amazing man. Right off the bat from Mark's accounts of Scripture, he talks about Jesus as this unbelievable teacher, this unbelievable healer, this one who delivers people from evil spirits, this man that, if you remember the context last week, that crowds would come to him when they heard about his that he was in the area, and he would heal sick people nonstop, sometimes until the whole crowd was healed, sometimes in the morning, sometimes at night. Um, Jesus was an amazing man. But let's look at him in chapter 2 as we continue our journey through some of Mark. We'll highlight, we won't go through the whole book of Mark in this series, but we will highlight different aspects of who Jesus is through Mark. But we will continue out of chapter 1 right into chapter 2 this week. 
And we'll read starting with verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door while he was preaching God's word to them. Here the crowds come again. They pack the place. We, we're going to look today and next week about uh, at Jesus from the lens of him being the great physician, of him being the one who heals both our bodies and our souls. And uh, the crowds are coming because they had probably heard about him healing the man of leprosy. They'd probably heard about him healing people throughout the night um, in the town that he was just in. They, they heard that there was something unbelievable about Jesus, and they are coming to crowd around him. The clinic doors of Jesus the doctor are always open. Amen? The doors of the clinic are always open, and he is open to receiving those who are hungry and who have need of him. So read with me, read along with me again, verse 3, as we finish this first story of two that we'll look at today. Four men, well, um, excuse me, some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. And since they could not get to him, Jesus, because of the crowd, uh, Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered that mat, the mat of the paralyzed man, the mat the paralyzed man was lying on, excuse me. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. The paralytic got up took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. When I read that story, I'm always so struck by a number of things. I'm, I'm struck by the faith of this paralytic friends. You know, that they... They have so much, not only faith, but they have so much determination to love this man that they'll do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. There's huge amounts of crowds surrounding the house. They figure out, you know what, the quickest way to Jesus is not to try to say, excuse me, or, or bust through the crowd. We're just going to go over the top. We're just going to dig through the roof. We're just going to drop him down right in front of Jesus. And that they did. There was, there was an amazing amount of work, amazing amount of determination, amount, amazing amount of love, amazing amount of faith to get this man in front of Christ. But that's not my sermon today. But I love that part of this, this story. That we would have such compassion and such faith for our brothers and sisters that we would do anything, it, whatever it takes, to help our friend in need. 
What I'm also struck with by this story is that Jesus is, is a man in the moment. You know, I, I don't know what I would do if a paralytic man fell at my feet, you know. What a, what a crazy story. But in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of this teaching, it says that he's preaching. All of a sudden, this man is here, and Jesus takes this opportunity. Takes this opportunity to preach something far greater than the miracle that he would perform on this paralytic's body. But he takes this moment to declare to the people around him that he is of God. He takes the circumstances of this man's ailment, his physical need, and he's not just concerned about this paralytic man's soul, but he's concerned about the soul of the crowd. And he's concerned about the soul of those of you and I who will read this story however many thousand years later because he con he's concerned not just about our temporal satisfaction, but he's more concerned about our eternal salvation. So he sees this man and he sees the opportunity. He sees the opportunity to show and to declare to the crowd and to this man that he has something to give something to heal that's far greater than his body. And that is a pretty amazing healing in itself that he wants to do. Jesus is concerned about healing the whole of us, not just part of us. He wants to heal all of you, not just part of you. In our day, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a popular thing right now, right? Holistic healing. We, that's kind of, kind of a catchword, right? And holistic healing is is described oftentimes as the mixture of different kinds of techniques or or, or remedies to heal the person. And holistic is not just how the remedy comes about, but it's also about what part of the person is being healed. That that we want to be not only physically well, but we want to be emotionally well. We want to be in, Fully, fully healed. And yet, there's only one holistic healer. I mean, we can talk about different remedies, and we can talk about different aspects of what we want healed, but there is only one person who can heal the soul. There's only one person who can say to our sin, forgiven. There's only one person who can say to our brokenness, holistically, Get up and walk in your body and in your spirit and in your soul because I am the author of all things and I hold everything together because I am the one who is, who was and is and is to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says it this way, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you, that's Jesus, is faithful, and he will do it. Amen? Amen? So you have a holistic healer. You don't even have to pay the copay. You have Jesus, and he is concerned. He does care about everything about you. I think it's very, very important for us to note that, the, the, that Mark um, uh, 
comments on the fact that Jesus was reading their minds. He knew their thoughts. Why is that important? Because there is not one thing you say, let alone one thing that you do, let alone one thing that you experience, let alone one thing that you feel. No, you just picture the wholeness of who you are that God's not concerned with, that he's not knowledgeable of. So that when we even sit here today and we start to think about, God, what would it be like for you to heal all of me? What would it be like for you to, to have full control to heal all of me? Oftentimes it starts not with what you or I know about each other, but it starts with what I think or feel in my heart and mind that nobody knows. That darkest place or that most private place Jesus is going to. He knows you. He knows you. He knows me. Jesus is concerned about healing our heart way more than he's concerned about healing our bodies. Our bodies, the best of us, Billy Graham, a great example, lived to, was he 100 or was it just shy of 100? 99? It's a long time. Um, he lived a long life. But if he had forfeited his soul, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, or in this case, if he lives to be almost 100 years old, but forfeits his soul? Jesus is concerned about the heart way more than he is concerned about our bodies, although he does care about our bodies as well. Interesting analogy about the heart, right? About our life, our life flow of a heart attack happens if the flow of oxygen-rich blood to a section of the heart muscle suddenly becomes blocked. Most heart attacks occur as a result of a coronary heart disease. I just want you to know that I'm reading this. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> CHD, coronary heart disease, is a condition in which a waxy substance called plaque builds up inside the coronary arteries, and these arteries supply oxygen-rich blood to your heart. When the plaque builds up in the arteries, the condition is called arthrosclerosis. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. The buildup of plaque occurs over many years. Eventually, an area of plaque can rupture, break open inside of an artery. This causes a blood clot to form on the plaque surface. If the clot becomes large enough, it can most, mostly or completely block blood flow through a coronary artery. If the blockage isn't treated quickly, the portion of heart muscle fed by the artery begins to die. So if there's not blood flow, if it's blocked, eventually that artery dies. Healthy heart tissue is replaced with scar tissue. This heart damage may not be obvious, or it may, it may not be obvious, or it may cause severe or long-lasting problems, eventually leading to major complications, even death. Over the course of time, blockage happens, plaque builds up, inattention, it, 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 not knowing what's going on, our heart in this illustration starts to become hardened, dead. 
It's so important if we were to know how to take care of our hearts, which we do, eating healthy, living healthy, we can take care of our hearts so that they can clean out those arteries and keep the plaque from building up. We, we know some things that we can do, some things we can't do because of, of, of hereditary uh, genetic things. But at some point, if our arteries get clogged up, blood stops flowing, things start dying, and problems persist, leading oftentimes to death. How much more is it when our spiritual hearts get hardened? When we don't attend to our hearts, when we don't tend to the things that build plaque up in our, in our hearts. I thought it was interesting that that diagnosis talked about scar tissue. When we allow scars, hurts, wounds, unforgiveness to fester, our hearts become hard. When we allow unbelief, towards God, the creator of our hearts, the one that keeps us pure and clean. When we allow unbelief to come in, our hearts become hardened. Actually, the, uh, the author of Hebrews says this to us as a warning. He says, today, if you hear God's voice, if God's speaking to you and he's, he's, he's wooing you, he says, do not harden your hearts. The result of a hardened heart leads to unbelief. It leads to spiritual death. When I was thinking about Billy Graham, I was thinking about this really, really poignant and sad story of one of his dear friends when he was a young man with Youth for Christ. Billy Graham started out as, a, as an evangelist with Youth for Christ in his 20s, and there was another Youth for Christ evangelist named Charles Templeton, and Billy often would say that Charles Templeton was a better evangelist. He was a greater preacher. He was charismatic and dynamic, and many responded to his messages with faith in Christ Jesus. And they knew each other early on as in their, their, their times working with Youth for, youth for Christ. Um, but by 1948, Templeton's life and worldview were beginning to go in a different direction than Graham's. This was still when they were young. They started in 19... Uh, uh, well, Templeton came come to faith in 36, but they had started in the early 40s to... to to preach uh, as a young, young evangelist. And in 1948, he, things began to turn for Templeton. He began to have doubts about his faith, um, and they were solidifying as he planned to enter Princeton Theological Seminary. And less than a decade after, after that beginning shift in his thoughts in 1957, he would publicly declare that he'd become an agnostic. In less than nine years... Once he started, and as, as, as you go further into his story, he started to, to doubt the veracity of the Word of God. He started to doubt that the Bible was true. And when he started to doubt the, 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 the reality or the truthfulness of the Bible, then he started to doubt God himself, and he became an agnostic. There's a, there's a, there's a really fascinating conversation that he had with Billy that I'm not going to go into, but I want to I fast forward to the end of his life. Now, Billy stayed firmly convinced that Jesus Christ was his Lord and Savior. He, he, he wholeheartedly believed in the truth of the word of God, and he continued to preach and declare God's word. And you know the story of Billy Graham. I just shared with you at the beginning of my message. But this is, this is an interview of, of Templeton towards the end of his life. He was in his 80s. He was, he was close to death, and Lee Strobel, who wrote A Case for Christ, interviewed him. And this is their conversation. And how did you assess this Jesus? This is, this is Lee uh, asking 
Mr. Templeton about Jesus. It, it seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready. Oh, wait. Um, but I wasn't ready for the response that he would have to that question. How do you assess this Jesus? Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old, dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and a reflective tone. His guard seemed to come down, and he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. Jesus was, Templeton began, well, he was the, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes. He's the most important thing in my life, came Templeton's reply. I, 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 he shuddered. He stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He, he castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He, he had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any, any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but, but no, he said slowly, he's the most, he stopped then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. And that's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I, I miss him. And his hand shielded his face from me and his shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply, wiped away the tears, and after a few awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. See, Templeton, I believe, had met Jesus. couldn't have preached about Jesus if he had not met Jesus. He couldn't have adored and loved him just in reading alone, but Jesus had touched something deep for him in his intellect. He had touched his soul. But somewhere along the way, Templeton decided that Jesus was not who he met. The Jesus that he read in the Bible, the Jesus that Jesus declared himself to be, was different. And he gave up on Jesus, the Savior. He gave up on the Word of God. He gave up on Jesus, the healer. And he made him a great man. 
And yet in those final words, he doesn't say, I miss his great teachings. Because if he's a great man, and if he was just somebody he read about, it would be his teachings that he could go back to and he could learn from and he could emulate and he could try to live out like Jesus lived out, but he didn't miss his teaching. He wasn't missing the great things that Jesus had done. He was missing him. He was missing friendship with God. He was missing a relationship that he had turned his back on. Jesus hadn't turned his back on him. He had turned his back on Jesus and walked away, and he was missing the friendship of Jesus, the life that God offers us. Now, I want to come back to our text and, and, and contextualize it in this, this passage. When Jesus saw this man on his mat, he saw not just a paralytic, he saw a soul. He saw a human being that he had created and formed and crafted in his own image, the scripture says. He saw somebody who was worth loving and somebody who was worth dying for because he knew what he was going to ultimately do. The reason that Jesus had authority to forgive his sin was not only that he knew that he was God, but he knew that he was going to pay the price of atonement for this man on the cross, therefore having the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. And not only did he know that about this man, but he knew that if this man received his forgiveness, he would be friends with this man for eternity. He loved this man, and he loves you. He doesn't want to just be a great teacher for us. He wants to be our savior. He wants to be our healer. And he can declare that. He desires to pardon. He desires to forgive. He desires to set us free. But before we can be forgiven, we have to know that we need forgiveness. Amen? Matthew 15. Some Pharisees and teachers have arrived from Jerusalem to Jesus and they asked him, why do, you, why do your disciples disobey old age-old traditions? For they ignore our traditions of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. And Jesus replied, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of, uh, of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give God what I have have, would have given to you. In this way, you say that they don't need, that you don't need to honor the parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is farce, is a farce, for they teach man made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come here, and he said, listen, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you said? And Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. So ignore them. 
They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, explain to us the parable that says people aren't defied by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Listen. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes out into the sewer. But the words you speak come from your heart. And that's what defiles you. For from your heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defiles you. Eating with unwashed hands will never, never defile you. The defilement of our life is our rebellion, is our sin. When we acknowledge that our sin defiles us, when we acknowledge that we are sinners apart from God, then we have the ability to meet with the doctor. When we don't have sin, then we don't need a doctor. Look back with me at our text today, and we'll go on to the next passage of Scripture, and we'll tie this all together. But Mark 2.13, it says, Then Jesus, after he, after he had healed the paralytic, it says he went out to the lakeshore again and taught the, crowds that they were, uh, taught, taught the crowds that were coming to him. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. That Levi is also Matthew. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Praise the Lord. Amen? Aren't you glad that he let sinners hang out with him? Let you hang out with him. Just want you to know that. Let me. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, hey, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. You know what the where the world is today, we go back and forth, but in our culture, in our time, we don't really have much sin. Actually, the most egregious sin that we have in our culture is to tell somebody that they're sinful. Because when we tell somebody they're sinful, it offends them. It offends us. But we are not the ones, nor is our culture or anybody, the ones who define what sin is. God defines what sin is. And he also tells us that our consciences know if we are honest when we are sinful. And oftentimes, the ones who fight the most and resist the most of a designation of sin in their life are fighting because they recognize it as being such in their life. Don't you know? I mean, I was like that as a kid. No, 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 Mom, I didn't lie. 
why was I so defiant of my non-lyingness? Because I lied. Because I was caught. Because I experienced the power or force of that proclamation because it spoke to the part of my soul that says, that is who I am. And I realize that it does not reflect or match up to who you are, God. We cannot be saved unless we are forgiven. There is an unbelievable strong move in church world to declare that God is love and that he loves us, therefore he accepts us and it's over. But it has no repentance attached to it. It has no acknowledgement that before Christ came into our life, we were broken sinners, helpless without Him, and in need of a Savior. We cannot experience nor thank God for the extravagant grace and love that He pours out on our life until we realize that we desperately needed His extravagant love. So it's not a bad thing when the Spirit of God convicts you of your sin. Let it be okay to be convicted. Wrestle not with the God who says you're sinful. Because the only reason he's saying you're sinful is because he wants to heal you. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you, but what is what comes out of you that defiles you. But God wants to get in you and heal your heart and forgive you. What is forgiveness? It's God saying to a guilty man, I will treat you as innocent from now on. No longer guilty, but forgiven. I like the way in, the, in, in Brendan this morning quoted it as we were praying over the service. But I like how Paul talks about Christ's work for us in, in Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 13. Actually, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, verse 13. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You know, when we are forgiven, when we truly experience the forgiveness of God, it's really hard for us to judge other people. And what I mean by that is, it's really hard. We can talk about what God's moral laws are and what God's truth is and we can communicate what God says in regards to judgment and forgiveness and salvation but in our own hearts a judge is one who sits above and pronounces judgment on somebody who's below it's really hard when we've been forgiven and we've really received forgiveness for us to place ourselves in a judge over somebody else or at least it should be. For it's God who is the judge, not me. 
We can declare who Christ is, but we have to acknowledge that but by the grace of God, I am who I am because of Jesus. And I am only standing here preaching and talking to you, by the way, because he has forgiven an unbelievably great sin. I know it because I know my heart before Christ. I know my heart when it's not good with Christ. But oh, thank you, Jesus, that you have been able to, because of your holiness and purity and your righteousness, stand in victory and say to the rulers and the authorities who say, I can't be forgiven and forgive me, who say that I can't be righteous and you make me righteous, who say that I can't be healed and you healed me, who say that I can't be delivered and you deliver me. You've done it for me, Jesus, and you, not me, stand on the top mound and say, it is finished. It is done. Not because Sean did it. He couldn't do it. Not because David did it, because he couldn't do it. Not because Joya did it, because she couldn't do it. Because Jesus has done it. And that is a great victory. And he can gloat. And he can exalt. Amen. One of the things I love about verse 13 through 17 is that the first story has the paralytic coming to Jesus. The second story has Jesus going out and finding sinners. You can either come or he can come to you. Amen? Some of you are here in church. You might think you've come, but it might be that Jesus has been coming to you. Jesus has been saying, I want to know you. We prayed this morning. I, have, I never know on any given Sunday who is a visitor or who is a guest or who is a longtime attender who is still wrestling with their relationship with Jesus and has never surrendered their heart to his forgiveness, never has received his grace, never has received his lordship in their life. I never know who, who in the room is in that place. But I can say that we prayed this morning, Lord, would you fill this church with people who are seeking? Would you fill this church this morning with people who are hungering to be known and loved by God. Because God, you're present and you want to extend an invitation of grace to those who are hungry. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. Greater than healing a paralytic or a leper because it meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. So who are his patients? We'll finish with this. Say it again. Who are the ones that Jesus comes to? The ones who are sick. But not just the ones who are sick. Jesus comes to all the sick. He'll come to everybody. But who are his patients? The ones who are sick and who are aware that they are sick. One of the biggest tragedies of non-healing is when people are sick and they don't know it. The other big tragedy of non-healing is when people are sick and they don't ask for help. 
when they don't get the help they can need, they, they, can, they, they can get. You know, one of the hardest things in being in parts of the world where there is a lack of awareness of just general health care is that people could be healed so easily with a simple antibiotic or a simple procedure of washing your hands or covering yourself, keeping yourself protected from mosquitoes or different simple things that could protect their life that they don't know it. Or they know it, but they're afraid of the health, health worker, the doctor that's saying they can be healed. It's true about our own spiritual condition. The patient that Dr. Jesus ministers to is the one who is sick and needs a doctor. So my question to you this morning, morning is, do you have need of Jesus today? I spent a lot of time this morning, we're going to talk next week about physical healing. But Jesus, as I, as I mentioned earlier on in the message, wants to heal the whole body. Are you a patient of Jesus today? Do you need Dr. Jesus, the great physician, to minister to your needs today? Would you stand up with me as the, as the band comes forward?